but they had active passive and PNF style mm. stretches. So there was some versatility from that perspective. And what they showed is that uh, the, uh, the changes, they managed to elicit changes in range of motion, and that corresponded to changes in the sprint cycle, that there was less strain. Okay. Uh, and this took place in both groups, but I should emphasize that this also took place in the strength group. So strength training also can improve, mm. but um, we there's less, uh, let's say, if strength training is more fatiguing. So this is good news where you can do less fatiguing training uh, and it can elicit a potential positive change. That was Johan Lati. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle stimulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System and KBox, or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that, as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of data collecting strips, the contact grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. When it comes to sports uh, injury mitigation and injury prevention, I have such a huge respect just for the job of the body in controlling all the little muscles and big muscles in a way that helps us to be explosive and do the job that we need to, but also just riding this razor's edge of not blowing ourselves apart. When we look at the massive, not only forces the body has to deal with, but also the but timing on just the millisecond or even less level that the body has to quickly engage and disengage muscles. It's absolutely incredible. And looking at the hamstrings particularly, it is amazing not only just the, the sagittal plane or the front to back, but also the rotational component of this muscle group and how it works to uh, help us perform as athletes is absolutely amazing. And looking at that razor's edge, it's no question why the hamstrings are often frequently injured. And uh, when it comes to hamstring injuries, taking um, a multifaceted and a holistic approach is so helpful. Uh, it's easy to talk just about uh, like a singular thing, like a singular element of running technique and Nordic hamstrings. But it's also enjoyable to have uh, to talk about everything we can think of when it comes to hamstrings and hamstring injury in the same conversation. A fantastic guest that we have who's going to help us with just that is Johan Lati. Johan is a strength coach from Finland. 
who is not only a strength coach, but also a hamstring researcher who he is pursuing his PhD on a multifactorial approach for hamstring injury risk and is doing so under the mentorship of prior podcast guest J.B. Marin. Johan is a practitioner who truly has a hand in both the worlds of the art and the science of athletic development. And it's these shows where we're talking, uh, we're talking methods, but we're also talking research and we're putting the two together and figuring out uh, where these, um, how in these two uh, fields interact, the qualitative and the quantitative. On today's podcast, Johan is going to tell us about the ideas of strength and um, technique in the weight room, not just exercises, but how an athlete's technical proficiency and how they're executing various exercises may play a role in potential hamstring issues. Johan is also going to talk about running technique, mobility and flexibility, proprioception, cognitive demand, and uh, really the big picture of how all these might interact when it comes to hamstring injury risk prevention. So this is a great coaching podcast for your toolkit in hamstring injury risk and just understanding some of these concepts on a global level as well. It was awesome to have Johan on the show. Let's get on to it. Johan, it's great to have you here. Um, I love doing shows on hamstrings and hamstring injury prevention. I think that if I did shows on like bicep tear injury prevention, I, I feel like it just wouldn't get quite the the community and the the, um, the audience listening. I, hamstrings are always fun to talk about, and obviously they're a really important injury to to learn to prevent. But before we get started with the questions, could you tell me a little bit about what drew your interest to your field of research and application with the hamstrings? Uh, yeah, great, great question. Actually, it brings me got a nostalgic feeling directly. I I initially found interest in the hamstrings by my one of my first mentors in Canada when I was an exchange student in 2011. His name was Paul Balsam. And it, it's not this one in Sweden, or is he in Sweden right now? I don't know. Uh, maybe in England, actually. Sorry about that, if that's after I'm mixing. But uh, he was um, a rugby a strength and conditioning coach, mostly in, in the UK and moved to Canada. And uh, he had a fascination for hamstring function and how it contributes to propulsion and acceleration and, you know, using that as a stable to how the muscle's complexity is really interesting and how it is responsible for directing force quite efficiently between the hip and knee. So there was so much to learn and that really, and so we knew so little. So that was very fascinating. And then it just stuck with me when I went to do my master's in Uvascula and uh, Andres Hagee that you you have as a guest here too. Um, he he was doing high density EMG for the hamstrings, and that was really fascinating. Of course, he there was a lot of else other things going on with the hamstrings there, so that just obviously just more fuel to the fire, and. Uh, yeah, then I went back to Canada uh, to learn even more for a year. I took a gap year so I could continue learning from uh, my mentors there, including Paul. And uh, then I guess I was just permanently stuck with that. Uh, happy, of course. And I wanted to, there were so many un uh, unanswered questions that could be answered within the scope of a master's that I thought it would be logical to continue with a PhD and stumbling upon JB's JB Morin's research during my years in Canada and during my masters was evident or inevitable and 
I contacted him and long story short, it ended us uh, ended with collaboration and continuing with the hamstring theme, but a bit differently. So one of the things that I'm excited to ask you, because I know when we did the, the, I know for the Friday five question and answer, you were talking about, or one of the questions was strength versus running technique. And I think that when it comes to hamstring injuries, I think it's really easy to probably get on one side or the other. Do we need to look at specific muscles or do we need to look at a technique that's causing injury? How do you go about, and I don't necessarily want to like pit one against each other, but how do you look at that uh, equation with strength versus running technique in hamstring injury prevention? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very good question and it's, it directly gets quite difficult to keep structured just because already the, the word strength includes so many, uh, it's an, quite an abstract term. As you know, it's difficult to define well as somebody can have, let's say, if you're doing a squat, a force plate can read a specific a Newton output, but they can produce that force by different strategies. So let's say one has a bit more valgus, one has a bit more hip shift, and but the result end result is the same in terms of Newton. So, but are they technically producing strength for different tasks, even though it's defined as a squat? So uh, that is really interesting, and I think that should be discussed more. That's why I don't like to too much separate strength from technique, as I think they're you know entwined in some some way but uh, evid evidently or uh, it needs to be done <laughs> in terms of research that's why I, I kind of like to use the words talk about force production so that strength doesn't get mixed in if i give an example from the, tr the track world doing you know a skips with really good technique i think my glute med is on fire after that sometimes or other drills and I would consider that there are elements of strength there or strength improvement, even though it's considered a technique drill. So really, depending on the athlete, there might be, you know, a strength stimuli. So that's why it's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, so basically, yeah, basically you're saying there's, and in terms of just like typical strength, like a, like a squat, that may not display the strength that an athlete is actually using when they run. Uh, is that is that basically what you were getting at there? Well, yeah, that's maybe as uh, if you're using the squat as an example. Uh, one interesting thing is that if somebody somebody's squat technique, let's say in a split squat, this was a bit what I was discussing in your in the Friday Five text is that uh, you can maybe to some extent predict how someone's going to move during sprinting based on their split squat technique mm -hmm. or even their squat technique. But yet we define it more of, you know, how much load he's lifting up and down. Our center of mass is moving up and down, but, you know, there's so many different strategies to do it, but the end result is the same, you know? So that's why I like to keep that in mind while we're discussing the strength versus technique aspect. Oh, gotcha. All right. So that makes sense to me for sure. I've heard um, Dan Victor, who one of the very first shows we did, talked about, he's like, I can see your running technique in an isometric lunge hold or a split squat hold. And I right. think, you know, be it a ISO lunge or a split squat variation, we, I think we definitely see things that always show up in like the folded up positions, the midair positions, the what's your joint range of motion. 
So I, it's funny because I was actually going to almost ask that more from the sense of uh, like Nordic hamstrings would be the typical like, oh, if you can do Nordics, then you're strong in the posterior chain. And I mean, part of that might be too, like some people would arch their back more for a Nordic hamstring. So I definitely agree with you there. Like the, yeah, because what is strong? Like if I um, am doing a squat and I, or even a split squat and I lift more weight, but I'm really arching my back to do it, or I'm not creating, giving myself a lot of joint variability where I don't have a lot of movement options. I imagine that yes, weight was lifted, but how effective is that strength in carrying over to uh, running on the field in different directions where I'm going to be called to have more joint variability because I have to make sudden shifts or various things. So I like that idea of that uh, from that standpoint, the strength and the technique. How might that fit with a uh, Nordic hamstring or posterior chain or Romanian straight leg deadlifts or anything like that? How would, they, how would we factor in looking at more quote-unquote specific hamstring strength work into that? Yeah, it's, it's again, a really good question. I, I typically think of it now as those exercises as although they can in influence at, in some individuals intramuscular coordination, they're intramuscular focused and therefore it's smart to try to use your time efficiently where you're trying to stack different stimuli together. So let's say hamstrings wise as it's a two joint muscle, could I use exercises also that stimulate both the hip and knee at the same time? So I'm uh, stacking using my time efficiently whereas you know a nordics which i will uh, i don't want to give the image that i would uh, not use them as we we do use them it's in our uh, research protocol for hamstring injury risk reduction i just want to give it as an example where although you could argue for many benefits and it's tons of research supporting it there you're isolating really the knee flexors there so but even the Nordic group don't emphasize any point that you only should use the, the Nordic. Uh, so that's already, I think, quite established. But it's good to try to think of an intramuscular stimuli that takes into consideration all the muscle groups that uh, support the hamstrings uh, or the muscle tendon units and the hamstring heads themselves. So different tasks, as we know, different exercises stimulate the, the, maybe the biceps uh, long head, tomorrow's long head a bit differently than the semitendinosus and maybe even from a different region of the muscle. So, but uh, these kind of things I think are good to think about. The part of my brain that says, that always wants to say what is better, which I know when we're talking about this, it's not, it's about <laughs> yeah. everything. Like I want to get into your protocol, but I think about people like to just go to exercises and just outputs, like how good is your Nordic? Can you touch your nose to the ground? What does the Nordboard say? Or, or things like that. And I'm not, I think that's good to be able to do those things. But it's also, I mean, I think that I would take an athlete who can do a really good split squat and have a good like stacked rib cage and, and show good mastery over the range of motion. I mean, that there's a few more elements that there that you can't really put a number on. I mean, you could, but it's just knowing how to observe movement that I think that's really important too. I, I guess it's not a question of my mind always wants to say, well, I'd rather, I'm biased towards saying, well, you should, all coaches should be really good at observing movement. And so this is better, <laughs> you know, and I think they're probably both very important. You probably want to have all of them in your system. Like you want to be good at Nordics. You want to be good at doing your split squats with technique that carries over to running and everything. Yeah. Yeah. The, and I forgot to say that that was a really good point with, um, with even in exercise, an isolated exercise as Nordics, 
I feel that you can predict movement uh, based on how the people like to shift their yes. pelvis into an anterior pelvic tilt on that exercise. And I feel that that is kind of in, a present uh, or predictable one aspect that can maybe predict movement choices when more dynamic tasks are done, where hamstrings are need to be utilized in a high level. So it is really interesting that, you know, these kind of simple tasks that we consider help give us some holistic even information or broader information. But it's difficult to answer that question of what is uh, the most optimal exercise. I think if you're ticking those boxes, then you could argue that some exercise is doing enough if you have other exercises that are ticking the rest of the boxes. Sure. I like what you said about the Nordics too. I, I've mentioned that on the show before, the idea of the, the back arching, but I, I think it'd be very interesting to, I don't know, like, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to decide exactly why someone had an injury, but I think it'd be interesting to watch people do Nordic hamstring and to notice strategies and almost mark down like this group was a back dominant anterior tilt strategy when they did the movement. And this group had more mastery over the pelvis and then see if that played into who might have had an injury or not throughout the year. I'd be curious. I mean, you probably could see it in running mechanics in certain situations potentially too, or if the hamstrings were called on for a high load, maybe that was the, that would be the shift. But yeah, I, I think that would be interesting. I mean, I have no idea. I, it's like you watch someone do a Nordic hamstring and if they're just arching their back real hard, that's clearly not a good thing. So yeah. it'd be interesting. Yeah. To see. Then it becomes again about that aspect of, like I was talking about the squat that, you know, you're getting up and down, but how are you doing it? So that is, especially in these kind of super maximal exercises, you would think it's quite evident that these kind of improficiencies should be considered. I tried to put a sensor actually on the pelvis in one of my, uh, you know, we were doing some pilots for the screening protocol and we have this pelvis sensor that uh, is a goniometer also. And yeah, I was trying to see that if I could, when people are doing maximal knee flexions, if they choose more or less a strategy with they shift their pelvis more into anterior pelvic tilt and could that give some you know controlling for that confounding factor but it's so much work mm -hmm. it was it took it took so long to do that i didn't really have time for, well i didn't have time for it so uh it is definitely your uh, on point there that's there's so much in uh, money going into hamstring research i wouldn't be surprised if someone picks up that as a research topic yeah maybe maybe tries to make it a little more time efficient i think a lot of that stuff with all the things the human body can do you could measure so many things right it's just probably more about finding like the the smaller like big rocks and just knowing how to assess those well yeah yeah exactly like our time time is such a high value like uh, we can create these great protocols in the lab gold standard uh, equipment but then what's the use of no teams don't have the budget or, or, or time or resource, you know, well, or facilities to do conduct these tests. So a lot of this stuff needs to really be, there needs to be a lot of technological advancement that we can get, you know, advanced uh, or more uh, with less testing, a good idea of what's going on. That's, that would be the end goal, right? So I don't have to do 20 tests, indirect tests to get an idea. We want to get closer and closer to what's going on, but that's so difficult right now with the technical technology we have. And we can discuss that. I think that's an interesting topic to discuss um, 
what are some potential ideas for the future. Uh, but yeah, you're, yeah, that's interesting. So the, the other half of that was like the running mechanics. And I know you'd mentioned it, like you're going to see, however an athlete runs, you're going to see a lot of that stuff show up in various positions in the gym setting in terms of their joint options. But in terms of like on-field running technique, I mean, anterior pelvic tilt's always the big one people talk about. Um, what have you guys looked at for looking at the link between running technique and hamstring injury? And if there's any low hanging fruits there that really stand out? Yeah, well, our strategy was just as technological restrictions didn't allow us to have that anterior pelvic tilt is, is measured with a Vicon system, a 3D 3D kinematics, which is a very time-consuming, yeah. to say the least, and um, it's great stuff, but yet it's not practical in uh, real-life settings, and um, therefore we need advancements where IMU sensors can be even on the athletes during maybe practice, but we're not there yet. So right now we're. Um, at the point where we need to have like indirect measurements that can be do, done quickly on the field. And we're just simply measuring them from the sagittal plane. And based on some studies that uh, support the idea that you can watch the thigh or knee uh, movements and you can kind of, it can be associated with their, their pelvic position. And if actually, if you look at this, anterior pelvic tilt study, the famous one by Schwimmers at Al in 2017, they have a picture, a sagittal plane picture of the 3D kinematics. And what you can see is it's a very, you know, it looks like a, this kickback mechanism is taking place in this athlete with a more pronounced anterior pelvic tilt. So it's very interesting if there's some connection here and then that and a lot of anecdotes by different coaches and some study, biomechanical studies, support the ev evidence-guided, you know, uh, has face validity, at least, where you, it could be of value just quickly looking at how their thighs are moving in, um, in the sagittal plane, and if that's predictive of injury. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, the, the the kickback and indicating yeah the tilt and stuff like that. I can I could definitely see that. And I we just had a podcast with um, Joel Reinhardt and Andrew Cormier, and they were talking about how women's field hockey players when they have basically you're running with a stick in front of you. Or Cam Jossa talked about his med ball knee punch runs where you hold a med ball in front of you. But basically, when you're running and there's something in front of you, he had mentioned those girls in the game would exhibit better 
you know, they wouldn't have that backside back kicking mechanic as much because it's almost like they have a sensation and a weight in front to bring everything back around and probably help that core get stacked up for someone who might not be so good at that. So it's interesting. It'd be interesting too just look at like, um, it, you know, hamstring injury in field hockey perhaps too versus a different sport where the norm is not to have is to be in a different position on account of what you're running with. I mean, I'm sure when you run, it might be different, but I mean, it'd be interesting, just an interesting thought that popped in my head to check, cross check across sports where you might be holding something in your hands versus where you're not. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I also saw Cameron's presentation with this ball holding in front and I've tried it myself and it's, it's brilliant stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I always like using an external stimuli or something that's more that gives an athlete something to wrap around. And first, I'll I'll go there first versus uh, necessarily trying to coach things or automatically coach things or tell athletes to have things in their head while they're they're operating. I wanted to ask yeah. you about one thing I thought was really fascinating that you've written about was mobility, and I, I believe the idea that being more mobile is good for not hurting yourself with the hamstring perspective, but stretching to get there doesn't help. Or can you clarify that? How does that, how does that all break down when it comes to hamstring injuries and mobility? Yeah. So it's kind of like, uh, I classify this also as like an intramuscular uh, stimuli, not coordination wise, but intramuscular, where we're trying to uh, manipulate the tissue to achieve a certain outcome. And, and in this sense, there's supportive biomechanical evidence for lengthening the angle of peak torque in the hamstrings with range of motion training so uh, then that would mean that and also uh, additionally that your range of motion is moderately correlated with how much strain mechanical strain or lengthening past optimal length takes place during sprinting so changing this by changing that peak angle of of torque means that there's less strain during sprinting as you produce a peak torque at longer lengths so this has been uh, recently shown by Juan et al those references are in in that text and really fascinating studies and the uh, the fact with range of motion training is that well we have to remember that we shouldn't just consider the hamstrings we should consider other muscles that influence the hamstrings that modeling studies have shown that muscles that basically can pull uh, contribute to lengthening the hamstrings just as and the hip flexors are most famous or iliopsoas. So this these kind of things need to be considered that we don't too much isolate that. But basically what we're trying to achieve is maybe through change that peak angle of torque, uh, have some uh, reduce maybe that viscoelasticity. So the, through maybe fluid shifts where there's not so much stiffness in the, in the tissues within the muscle tendon units. But it should be emphasized here that it, it's really important to actually control. I was writing this in the text that it's really important to measure pre and post here that are you eliciting change in your range of motion exercises, kind of like Kelly Starr does, you know, there's a pre and post and it shows that, you know, now the range of motion is this much. So then the likelihood of it not just being increased pain tolerance, but there's actually a physio- physiological change is more, there's a higher likelihood for this. And I think 
when we do range of motion exercises for our athletes, uh, there's a lot of slacking off and it's not very intense and there could be, but if we, in an ideal scenario, range of motion exercises are very easy to do, as you know, and can, can, can be conducted really often because the neuromuscular fatigue component is so low. Sure. So I'm trying to clarify this with like, cause I was, I was under the impression that I think in this, a study you highlighted was saying that athletes who have more range of motion won't get hurt as much. I'm assuming it's in like the hamstrings or hip flexors. They have less chance of injury, but athletes who stretch statically to acquire a better range of motion, it doesn't help them. Am I wrong on that? Or is that correct? Well, the study, the, there was two studies uh, or actually three, but two, I think, let me see if I'm summarizing them correctly. So one showed that uh, the range of motion in a straight leg raise task was moderately correlated or with the how much length change or past optimal length you, you're experiencing during sprinting. So as hamstring injuries are typically happen during the terminal swing phase where there's some lengthening of the hamstrings past optimal length, uh, then this the theory of this first study is that, well, when we test, when we screen our athletes and they have good range of motion, maybe with, there's a, a smaller likelihood that there, there's a large strain during each stride of the sprint cycle. And then they did a second study where they did an intervention and tried to manipulate this range of motion. And they did also, they had one group that just did strength training and um, also at different lengths. And the range of motion training was versatile, although they didn't, they didn't consider the hip flexors to that, uh, that much. They had a lunge position at least, but they had active passive and PNF style Mm -hmm. stretches. So there was some versatility from that perspective. And what they showed is that uh, the, uh, the changes, they managed to elicit changes in range of motion, and that corresponded to changes in the sprint cycle, that there was less strain. Okay. Uh, and this took place in both groups, but I should emphasize that this also took place in the strength group. So strength training also can improve, mm. but there's less, uh, let's say, if strength training is more fatiguing so this is good news where you can do less fatiguing training and it can elicit a potential positive change interesting was the strength training i'm assuming it was probably like maybe like full range of motion split squat type stuff or was it was there a particular range assigned to the uh, the strength training group yeah good question i i remember that they had a couple of different at least a couple of different exercises one of them was the, the nordic but there was i think there was some bridge type exercises and but not to what i remember anything uh, at extreme lengths you know a training i don't remember that there being you know any 45 degree angle hip ex- or back extension or maybe there was but nonetheless i cannot answer that with without digging the study uh, but i the strength protocol was let's say it wasn't it seemed quite normal what you would see in uh, some cohorts training sure so it was interesting yeah that's interesting to me yeah i'd be interested to check that out just because i i I do think i am biased to not prioritize static stretching just because my mind is always if you can get it through um just going through larger ranges of motion in your strength training itself you're you're kind of ticking that box 
but I'm always, I'm always curious of the utility of different things at different times too. And so I, it makes sense. I, I, that actually takes me to, and I'm not saying I wouldn't ever use static stretching. I just, I like body weight isometric holds and stretch ranges and that kind of, I mean, it is kind of (laughs) stretching. I don't know. Maybe it's just semantics, but I, I, yeah, I would be curious as to the range of that was utilized, but it does make me think of, and I, I want to say maybe JB Marin told me this, or I, I forget exactly where, but I think it was something to the, the tune of the Nordic hamstring increases the fascicle length of the hamstrings but also max velocity sprinting does the same thing. Like if you just do max velocity sprint work that your hamstring muscles like will get the fascicles will get a little bit better at end range just organically because you are sprinting faster. Do you have any thoughts on that idea? I mean, I guess that fits with the strength training element that there maybe there was some length improvements or something. But uh, what do you think about that idea? Yeah, and I will answer that question quickly after um, adding a comment about the range of motion and that I also agree on the static stretching component that I would prefer to use dynamic stretching and uh, maybe trying to think of some kind of direct isolation. So maybe trying to emphasize that pelvic placement between the hip flexor and the hamstrings and uh, using coordination to hold posterior pelvic tilt when there's such a bias in certain sports to shift anteriorly so these kind of things there's more details to the range of motion definitely and um, I just wanted to emphasize that point there and it's easy easy people usually connect it directly just to the static parts so that is an interesting discussion of when when and when not to do static yeah, so you're yep. saying that static doesn't guarantee you're going to control any range well. You could be, you know, maybe you increased your range, but you could still be kind of flopping around from a coordination pelvis standpoint when you need to be in good positions versus doing something that's more whole body. When you're doing it dynamically, it's there's much more coordination required to utilize this range of motion. Yeah, and, and rarely would it be, it would be a, considered a supportive method, mm-hmm. I think. It wouldn't be a primary method, but strength training would be, that's an example of a primary method and then you would have supportive supportive uh, by uh, just because of what what the game does and what the the stiffness increases from just playing the sports and then the fatigue component then that's why it's a, a practical supportive method range of motion training to some extent and then you could argue about how you're doing it of course but uh yeah that's more maybe I wanted to emphasize that. Yeah, I, I think but you were asking about the. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I, yeah, I think a lot about just an athlete in their pure natural state, or even just like a caveman. Like, does a caveman need to stretch, you know, his or her hamstrings to be the best? Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like, if an athlete's <laughs> doing all these things, or even in max velocity sprinting, that the hamstrings are naturally adapting to that stimulus by increasing their fascicle length on their own. I mean, I'm sure that probably having better mechanics is probably going to be a better thing there with that adaptation. But I, I always just feel like I'm always trying to think of ways to reduce the noise in the system if we don't need to do something or if there's a faster, better way to do something, I want to do that. Uh, so yeah, it's a fair that. argument point. Absolutely. Like some physiotherapists say they don't do much range of motion training anymore and especially static yeah. stretching. And uh, I would disagree in that sense that there's in certain cohorts like football, I consider uh, it a practical tool during the weekly Mesocycle or the mesocycle and um, microcycle that is. So I would be able to debate about that, but but yeah, it's 
I wouldn't have strong opinions about it because mm-hmm. if you're again ticking the boxes with other methods, then fine. I'm just not convinced that it's easily replaceable due to that fatigue, fatigue component. And also these interesting things that what are all the things that influence range of motion and you've have guests had guests a lot with that try to narrow musk well there's a lot of reflexive uh, it's trending right now with the reflexive methods or uh, rpr i believe and this um chris corfists and uh Caldiet stuff and they're basically showing that if you just manipulate these small things your range of motion changes mm-hmm. by that and just by warming up the body itself your range of motion improves so this is interesting also that our range of motion exercise is actually just functioning because you're increasing heat in the muscle. So uh, these kind of discussions are very relevant and uh, will be nice to debate more in the future. But yeah, in uh, you were asking about the fascicle components and the sprinting versus isolated work. Yes. Yeah. So Animal studies also seem to support this where we're doing sprinting that there's these, well, what we're trying to do with fascicle testing is, as you probably know, the sarcomere number in in um, series, we're trying to increase that or maybe in, even increase the specific length of a sarcomere. We don't really know what's happening. So that's why it's indirectly by fascicle length measuring. and. Uh, it's an interesting one where in one animal study using guinea, guinea pigeons, I can't remember how it went, where they had them run one control group and another one did basically these hurdle types of sprints. They then did the cadavers. Unfortunately, they had to kill the birds. And uh, so, sorry, that was a bummer. Uh, but um, yet we got um, clear evidence from the cadavers that the sprinting group had um, much longer fascicle lengths afterwards. And and, and uh, this has now been, become something of interest also by Jordan Mendigucha published that study last year where there was changes, substantial changes in fascicle length from a sprint program and to some extent more, I think, even than the Nordic group. And again, you need replication studies from for this kind of stuff because it's difficult to measure fascicle length accurately with the equipment we have these days and because the hamstrings are quite uh, complex with three-dimensionally. So there's rotation of the fascicle also, and it's difficult to control for this and with 2D uh, ultrasound. Uh, but um, there, there is a huge discussion base right now of what's the role with changes in fascicle length and also with the Blasevich's team and colleagues are trying to also look at what's maybe the role of uh, these gear ratios. So uh, you could argue also that a pen- higher penation angle in some cases protect from lengthening also, or fascicle lengthening, that is. If, uh, so that's a really, a, that topic gives headaches easily. So uh, I would say right now, though, it mm-hmm. seems that there's benefits of increasing both a bit, fascicle length and penation angle, depending on what head we're talking about in the hamstrings. But yeah, I tend to, as I have not studied that specifically, I tend to just lean on 
the broader picture where it's just good to do the be good at the task that's required so sprinting a lot <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i mean I, I do think about you know the idea of reducing noise in the system i guess ideally in the perfect world you just manage stress well you run with good technique and your body just adapts and you don't really need to do too much extra like I, I i was just talking with coaches recently about this is like just how much i mean like bulletproofing is the big thing and i i don't, I don't disagree with it like all these special exercises designed to help protect muscle groups but at the end of the day i i would value doing big rock things with better technique and being able to manage the pressures in the body and the angles and the skeleton better in those versus having a misaligned skeleton or or body angles or bad running technique and then doing all the bulletproofing because then you're just like there's so much stuff going on maybe you're holding it together but i feel like that strain also could impact like your longevity or you might, I mean, it's just so much more energy to keep that system running versus just getting to like the bigger, more core components. And I think, I mean, it sounds like I think that's what we're doing and the research is leading us towards that. I was going to say too, just a side note is I, I'm trying to picture birds running over hurdles. I think that would be, I don't know how they made them do that. But <laughs> I, it's interesting. I, I haven't read that study now in a while, so I could be rem- remembering something of <laughs> Uh, something wrong but i swear there was something like <laughs> a component of this. if you could send it but to yeah. me if you if you can find it send it to me i would be very curious about that it just seems like yeah I'm trying i to picture birds like like i don't even know what their mechanics i mean i feel like their legs almost go the <laughs> other way or something or they have a really long like foot that just i, I i'm curious what the kinematics would be but i don't know yeah. maybe, but you're maybe. correct with the the that emphasizing the word animal studies there so yeah. again we cannot predict or associate that the results for humans as you know so uh, uh or strongly yeah strongly yeah, different results. structure yeah so, but but they do of course give a very support and evidence guided uh, decision in researching further researching it in humans yeah i mean yeah i could see i could definitely see the mechanism in in, in humans of uh, just adapting too it's like okay if sprinting is going to place a greater low is especially with that swing leg coming through if it's going to demand a lot out of your hamstrings your hamstrings have to adapt somehow to that and so i think that and i always i, I always like um thinking about what rafe kelly has said he's uh, i think back on the podcast well over a year ago but the idea of um almost like working at the level of the highest coordination and that uh, rising old ships rather than like a lower coordination, like a lot of ex- extra bulletproofing you don't need that's really low coordination is just work the high coordination element really well and that will raise the ships up. So I yeah, I, I think about that. I, I think it's, a, I, I, I mean, I think that's what we're all pulling towards, you know. And so with all this being said, I want to ask you, you talked about your protocol. So with all these things that you've researched and studied and looked at, what is the protocol looking like for giving athletes their best shot at staying healthy from a hamstring perspective? Yeah, so the, our cohort is, I want to emphasize this, that we're, we're looking at football, so soccer players, that is. And therefore, some things that we find here uh, won't maybe apply to other populations because I see a lot of you know, extrapolation. We were discussing about sprint technique and some things might not be relative uh, or predictive anymore in other cohorts, such as, rug, let's say, rugby players, where there's a lot of hamstring injuries too but there will might be different mechanics. So I really want to emphasize that my PhD focuses on soccer. So therefore, these are the categories that 
we have of interest in this context. And um, we have the four, four main categories uh, that we thought would realistically fit into schedules and screening protocols. So that would be strength, posterior strength testing. And then we have range of motion. Then we have lumbar pelvic control. And the last one is sprint me- mechanical output testing. And uh, many of these components, so you could, uh, they kind of are connected in uh, uh, many sense. So uh, as an example, we're measuring force outputs in the sprint during sprinting. Uh, technically, that's a strength measure, measure, but yet it's separate from strength, the strength measurements that we're doing in isolation. So, but I still want to emphasize that these things are some most, uh, we believe, independent, but it's in, in, they are related also to each other. Cool. So, yeah. So the um, the lumbo pelvic is that um, is that measured kind of how you're talking before with like the marker or um, how because that that's the interest that's the one that kind of sticks out to me is is how you could look at it in the weight room you could look at it with I guess like what you were talking about or um, like where the feet are and running how how does that shake out in the protocol? Yeah. So currently we have focused focused on aspects that are seeing how the pelvis moves gates and or indirectly try to predict how the pelvis moves in during sprinting due to we don't have the technology available that could measure it accurately and quickly during sprinting itself but we're trying to get an idea of dynamic movement so it's not just measuring that static position and biggest emphasis would be anterior pelvic tilt in this population as there seems to be a bias towards this position and therefore this causes the hamstrings to have to uh, do more stabilizing work and uh, which is in well in uh, the theory is it's not very sustainable so this would be require a higher uh, lumbo pelvic control or this region of muscle balancing to cause a higher stability would be very important so that some load could be taken off from the hamstrings with uh, the sprint mechanics and or the, the sprint power, so how are you? Is it like vertical or horizontal force? Like, is it in a fly or acceleration? Like, tell me a little bit more about that, and if you've seen any correlations there. Right. So we have we are trying to what's maybe innovative in our approach is that we're trying to combine macroscopic and microscopic biomechanical measures with cheap technology. So macroscopic would be that larger picture, the mechanical picture of how much horizontal force is being produced. And this is done by uh, using the field method of uh, Pierce Amoncino and J.B. Morin, uh, really effective and quick to do. And the tech, actually, a recent tweet by J.B. stated that this could maybe in the future be done in situ. So d- just measure measuring the players when they're doing their sports and get an idea of their force velocity profile. But this is a mechanical uh, variable, so it's not, uh, or a macroscopic variable, so it's not telling us how they're producing that horizontal force. So then we would want to zoom in a bit and uh, emphasize how they are sprinting. And uh, this, as most injuries take place during uh, upright sprinting, we are isolating that component and trying to look at the, the kickback mechanism and trying to get an indirect idea of. Uh, let's say, are they 
running in a position of constant end range in terms of hip extension reserve. So they're constantly overextending and and uh, really working the hamstrings in long at longer lengths. So you would probably have unsustainable. Well, if the volume was increased, especially unsustainably, this would be a big issue. Sure. It makes me think about too. I wonder, yeah, some of those field tests are probably like, like you said, it's to, to the macro test can tell you the what, but it doesn't tell you the how. I, I know, you know, a lot of people look at like, how far is that foot traveling behind the body? I'd be interested in like shin angle change too, like how the shin angle changes to help create the lever by which the horizontal force is going to be applied. And I mean, those are it's hard. It's probably going to be really hard, though, to, to really like, you know, you'd have to sit there and analyze and look at like all yeah. sorts of different running. I mean, it would be, you know, it's just another you know, variable. But I think that to me, it's almost the, the principle, the overwhelming principle is just be body imbalance. You know, the, the, the ellipse of the run is imbalance and the body can control their pelvis and those types of things. It, it is a complex, like it can be really complex, though. I mean, we could like just take this down to the micro level and so I guess it's always good to kind of have this resting, like larger view by which to process it all. Yeah, and uh, we should also emphasize that uh, the football cohort—they're going to inevitably be different than track and field athletes, just because there's more requirement of accelerating in upright position. And this uh, idea, Hawk and Anderson emphasized to me that that the requirements of acceleration are are different so they have they have to try to get that force from extending more in many situations so there's going to be a bias of that movement uh, natural to the sport we're just trying to really trying to um, see that if is there things that we can do that uh, that they're avoiding to touching constantly end range motion in these tasks and um the the following progression future progression would be just having constant data kind of like gps data is now getting in more detail more important data of acceleration and deceleration amounts and max velocity where i'm uh, jason weber i believe in the afl he's doing his phd on he's trying to look more accurately at changes in their technique during practice so maybe you know some let's say someone's foot contacts or stride lengths maybe start to change suddenly from one week to another. And maybe that's a key metric there that, you know, there a change in their normal way of moving is the issue. So that's very interesting. And I think all these type of things need, need to be really looked at that we make it more a part of the training, the testing. Yeah, in the last podcast that just went out, uh, Joel Reinhardt, Reinhardt was talking about looking at elite level soccer players and basically some of them who, who stood out in the fact that they would be running in the open field and their mechanics would change to more like a track runner and then they would get back on the ball and they'd kind of start to exhibit more soccer type emotions. I haven't spent time watching this so I can't only say from just speculating but it it strikes me that I feel like athletes who are more well-rounded uh, earlier in life like they play different sports maybe they run track maybe they spend a lot of time playing on the playground and not just playing their sport all year, but it almost, I wonder if just playing one sport with, like you said, like maybe, maybe soccer or, you know, having a ball involved or another player involved might lend you to push more longer than, you know, front side stuff is not going to be as emphasized just because of the nature of things. So I just building a more robust runner. I, I wonder 
how like what you did as a young athlete plays into that and what exposure you have to different mo- means of running and locomotion. Yeah, I do absolutely believe that we can produce better postures and motions or movement at um, in terms of the sprint technique, but it has to start, as you were saying, like at a young age and um, be realistic to carry over to that level. So it's really difficult to start to change this on a professional level. This is what we're measuring right now is that is is our intervention also changing this stuff but uh, we will see it might might also just you know the work we're doing with the wickets and um, the lumbopelvic control exercise that are specific to sprint positions maybe they just uh, will more have a positive influence because it's stimulating a position they're not used to mm-hmm. so there's some balancing going on there that they're not constantly stimulating the same patterns that they're doing on the field so there there's a risk of overuse then so from that perspective it's also interesting that um what we're doing is but we can't we can't really show that um if that's happening yeah it's um i I definitely agree with filling that kind of bucket of you know if you're a team sport athlete go doing fly tens or maybe fly tens over like small wickets and stuff just to stimulate a style of running that's not so one-sided that you might be running in your team sport perhaps um i know our time is getting short so i want to ask you the last question here real quick or two just quickly posterior chain training i mean that's like an answer that's always pretty simple on the surface people it's like oh here's here's the exercise that this group is using to predict and whatever but uh just uh posterior chain thoughts on strength wise for athletes and things that they should be able reasonably to be able to do so here i would directly off the bat want to uh, emphasize that this would also include the tricep psoriasis, the ankle, but in our protocol, it doesn't because of time constraints, but we still want it to be trained. But then it would be then the, ideally the ankle joint, the knee and the hip, and even the lower back needs to be considered here. And um, Jordan Mendiguches tried to emphasize this point where we have to start considering in these kind of cohorts where there's such an a bias towards muscles wanting to pull the pelvis in an anterior direction that we have to also, so the erector spina, for example, that's um, highly stimulated for squatting patterns also. So if we're squatting in the gym, bilateral squatting, there's a lot of activation probably of that muscle group. So we're gaining maybe some good increases in torque or, uh, or force production from the glutes with, with, with the squats, but that also contribute to posterior pelvic tilt, which is great. But then we're equally stimulating the erector spinae, which pulls it in the opposite direction. So uh, these kind of small, smart considerations where maybe unilateral squats are smarter in this cohort, just from that also perspective, not just necessarily just from the transfer to performance perspective, we can, that's some separate discussion, but also in terms of that intramuscular where you're considering that what muscles are also pulling in what direction and in what ratios you're stimulating them during the movement. So from that standpoint, maybe having a bias towards split squats is smarter in this cohort just to reduce some emphasis on the erector spinite. And uh, posterior chain-wise, yeah, again, if you can stack these exercises so uh, an exercise that stimulates a couple of important muscles, like let's say adductor manganus and the glutes would be stimulated 
in a deeper squat or a parallel squat. And you would also emphasize some, let's say, it's good to consider what's going on with antagonists. So of course, quads need to be trained in so uh, football or soccer, but uh, there, there might be some interesting discussions here where to what ratio you're stimulating them. So I like, I discussed this really shortly with Brett Contreras and he thought it was an interesting idea where we really should consider in the squat patterns or even the deadlift pattern. Well, deadlift is an obvious one, but the ratio of movement between the hip and knee. So in a squat uh, or a split squat, I can do it in a different manner. I can do it, let's say, uh, knee dominant split squat where there's more range of motion movement from the knee joint compared to the hip, or I can do it the other way around where there's more trunk lean and less, uh, let's say, forward and, um, shift of the knee. So there's more range of motion movement from the hip in relation to the knee. And this, I think it's a smarter decision in terms of stacking and having good ratios of intramuscular uh, stimuli in the, the important muscle groups. So we're getting posterior chain with the emphasis on the hip and we're still getting knee stimuli, but it's, uh, or a knee ex extensor stimuli, but it's, it's not as much. And uh, therefore you're not promoting an increased HQ ratio where the quads are con continually stronger, much stronger than the hamstrings. So I like to, I think this should be discussed as one, one source. And then, uh, then of course, just getting some isolated work there, it's just easier to guarantee uh, that you're doing a really, and no other muscles are compensating for the hamstrings. Mm -hmm. So you're really uh, making the constraints uh, so that, oh, well, the hamstrings are very likely the only group that could really work in these constraints. So glute ham raises and Nordics are, or these slider types of exercises are quite smart. And in some of these exercises, again, like we discussed earlier, you can get more detail about the movement choices they want to make. And hip thrust is an interesting one also with good ratios between knee and hip stimuli. So that's my answer to that. Hopefully that was so somewhat clear. Sure. Yeah, I think about the glute ham and the Nordic too. And I, one thing I've been doing with those exercises a lot in the past year is making sure that an athlete has like, like they might do a glute ham with like a little medicine ball, like in kind of their stomach area so that they get feedback so that they can't arch their back into the glute ham. I mean, it's, it's just ah, interesting yeah. to watch athletes who, I don't know how you do it for a Nordic because that it's hard enough as it is like it's now I have a medicine ball too. And I mean, I mean, you could do, I like the Brett Contreras actually mentioned, he talked about the bent hip Nordic where you actually, you bend at the hip forward. And I like that because I feel like that at least, um, it probably changes the length of the hamstrings maybe in a good way, but you also can't like arch that back. Well, you can, but you can't, it's, you won't, you're not going to arch the back as much to fight the way down it. It at least creates yeah. a little different. And it's probably more like if you took that bent hip Nordic and you flipped it 360 so the torso is vertical, maybe it would look more like that terminal swing face. So just as you're talking, I'm just realizing how much I really do like that variation. I, I program that probably about half the time in my Nordic array. So oh, interesting. Yeah, it's um yeah, maybe that I don't know how you could um you know measure the hip in that uh angle exactly, but I don't know. I think it's an interesting situation. So I know, I know we're out of time though. And shoot, I feel like I had something to say with something you were, you had said a while ago, but that's okay. Yeah. Some range of motion. That's okay. Well, uh, I know you got to get going. I, I do appreciate your time. Thanks for making this happen, Johan. And 
it was great talking to you. I appreciate your knowledge, uh, sharing your knowledge with the hamstring space. That wraps up another show. Thanks for being here with us, and we will see you all next week.